Let's ask God to help us with his word. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, we pray this evening we would hear your word. We would be able to discern its truth. And we would conform our thinking and our acting uh, to what you teach us in your word. Help me to speak your word truthfully and clearly and help us all to test what we hear and to hold on to what's good and true and let the rest be forgotten. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Well, as Andrew uh, said, we're returning this evening to the Nicene Creed uh, to a five-week series that will allow us to complete looking at the teaching of this ancient Christian confession. Now, can you perhaps recollect how it goes? Let, let, let me refresh you, just in case from saying it at communion it's kind of slipped out of your mind. Uh, we believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, through him all things were made. For us men and for our salvation he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, he suffered death and was buried. On the third day he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and of his kingdom there will be no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Now, as you heard, the bulk of this creed concerns our God, Father, Son, and Spirit. But this evening, we're coming to the final paragraph, what the creed says of the church, of baptism, and of our hope. And in the next three weeks, we're going to particularly focus on the first line, We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Now, as you heard that, do these words excite you? One holy Catholic and apostolic church. Do these words excite you? Because they should. With those words, Christians confess themselves to be caught up in a great and noble love story and that the revelation of God they've just confessed, the revelation of the Father, Son and Spirit, is the revelation of the saving God, the God we have come to know and confess because he has acted to save sinners, to call them out of a world of sin, disorder and death into his people, the people he has prepared to live in his presence forever through the death of his Son, to live in his presence Well, there'll be no more pain or grief or tears where death will be no more. Now, while that's a mouthful, and you might think it's just preacher's hyperbole to talk of the confession as a confession of being loved, 
This is the way scripture speaks of the church. Uh, You might be familiar with Ephesians 5 because we read it a lot at weddings to remind people like me and other husbands that we're to love our wives. But it commands husbands to do this because we follow the Lord who has first loved his bride. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendour, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. That we can confess our faith in the church is because the Lord Jesus has loved the church and loved her effectively. It's his giving of himself that qualifies her to be his bride. Now, we're going to think a bit more about that, but for clarity, what's the church Paul is speaking of in Ephesians 5? What's the church the creed is confessing? Because we can use the word church in a number of ways, can't we? We can use it of the building, of the denomination, you know, the Presbyterian Church, the Roman Catholic Church. We can use it of a local congregation, and it would be hard to confess any of them as always one holy Catholic and apostolic with a straight face, wouldn't it, right? And the scriptures can also use the word church uh, to refer to a number of different but related things, can't it? The commonest use in the scriptures of the word church is for the local congregation or congregations, the gathering of believers or the believers who gather in a certain place. And so there's the church that meets in Priscilla and Aquila's place, Romans 16, the church of God at Corinth, the church of the Thessalonians, referring to the local church. And the New Testament letters were written because those local churches were often not one holy Catholic or apostolic. Just think about the Corinthians, for example. First start, far from being one, they were divided experiencing schism, a rent in what should be whole. So 1 Corinthians 11, when you come together as a church, there are divisions. Oh, and far from, they were far from being holy. They were a congregation that tolerated sexual immorality, even of a kind their society did not put up with. And yes, they were a congregation that really didn't seem to care for each other. They sin against each other, destroy each other. And a congregation that was flirting with false apostles, people who preached another gospel. So the Corinthian congregation was not one holy Catholic and on the verge of not being apostolic. And we read in Revelation 2 and 3 and see other congregations who couldn't be described by these words as well. But there is another, in, there is another way the New Testament uses the word church to refer to something bigger than local congregations. You get a sense of this wider use, say, in Acts 20. For although Paul is there talking to the Ephesian elders, he's not just talking of the Ephesian church when he speaks of it as the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. It's all those people he's purchased. And we see this bigger sense, especially in Paul's letters to the Ephesians and the Colossians. There the church, as you heard, is described as the body of Christ. 
Uh, He appointed him as head. That's God appointed him, Christ, as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. And Paul says it's through this church that God's demonstrating his wisdom to the spiritual powers. And and this church in Ephesians is more than a worldwide church, all who call themselves Christian in the world at any time, uh, which we could speak of with churches in the plural. And that's actually the way Paul does speak. He speaks of in the plural of churches, plural of congregation in a certain geographical area like Asia or of congregations, the church generally without geographical limit, Romans, all the churches of Christ. But the church in Ephesians and Colossians, the church that is the body which has Christ as its head, is the church that consists of all God's people across all the nations and all the ages, those that Paul can speak of in Ephesians 1 as chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, those whom the apostle can conceive of as being gathered in heaven even now by God's grace. He's raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. This is the church that's comprised of the one new humanity that's the fruit of Christ's saving work. Christ, who is our peace, who's who's broken down the dividing wall of hostility, making it of no effect so that he might create in himself one new man from the two. This is the church that our confession, that is the Westminster Confession, describes in these terms. The Catholic or universal church, which is invisible, consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, are or shall be gathered into one under Christ the head thereof and is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. So the church we're confessing in the creed is a church that none of us can really see in its fullness and that doesn't find perfect expression on earth in any congregation or institution. That's why we say we believe. You see, this line in the creed is a confession of faith, not an observation. It's a confession of faith in God. Understood as referring to this church, we should see this line of the creed as a confession that God has achieved his saving purpose and that he's achieved his purpose through his son who came down from heaven and became man for our salvation through his son and through his spirit, the giver of life. You see, God has had a saving purpose from the beginning, a determination to have a people of his own. So you think about Ephesians 5, that we started with. You see, Paul doesn't think up the picture of a bride for the church by himself, as it were, new. He doesn't think of that up new for God's saved people. That's a picture that has a history. You see, as marriage was also a covenant and God had entered into a covenant relationship with the nation Israel at Sinai, marriage is a naturally available picture of the Lord's relationship with his people. 
and it was used in the Old Testament. Now, sadly, as the history of God's dealings with his people was often marked by frustration and disappointment because of Israel's disobedience, marriage was often a picture used to highlight Israel's unfaithfulness. And so, for example, the prophet Hosea is told to marry a promiscuous woman so his marriage would be a parable of the Lord's relationship with his people Israel. Go and marry a woman of promiscuity, the Lord says to Hosea. And then in Hosea, the Lord speaks to Israel, rebuke your mother, rebuke her for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. Let me let her remove that promiscuous look from her face. Jeremiah and Ezekiel also both used this image to highlight the people of God's, Judah's, unfaithfulness to the Lord. If a man divorces his wife and she leaves him to marry another, can he ever return to her? And he goes on, you have prostituted yourself with many partners. Can you return to me? And then we see in Ezekiel 16, The God speaks of having found Israel and at the end of verse 8, taking her to himself, that she became his. But actually, Ezekiel 16, the whole chapter, is an indictment of Israel's unfaithfulness, of her many adulteries. So marriage is used, an old image in the Old Testament, used to highlight Israel's unfaithfulness. But it also has another use. Because the Lord is a God of steadfast love, of generous and faithful love that goes beyond what can be expected or demanded, marriage, God's people as God's bride, also becomes a picture of promise. Isaiah 54, indeed, your husband is your maker. His name is the Lord of armies. And the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. He's called the God of the whole earth. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and wounded in spirit. And again, going back to Hosea, the Lord says, I will take you to be my wife forever. I will take you to be my wife in righteousness, justice, love and compassion. I will take you to be my wife in faithfulness and you will know the Lord. God is determined to have his bride. But God's determination to have a people for himself is actually older than the Sinai covenant. Sinai itself was a fulfilment of the promise God had made to Abraham that his descendants would be his people and he their God, a promise repeated often. So it's repeated saying, Leviticus 26, I'll take, I will place my dwelling among you and I will not reject you. I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. And despite Israel's failure to obey, God continued in his determination to have a people of his own who would be truly his people, loving him and keeping his commands, a people amongst whom he could dwell. And so he promises in in Jeremiah this new covenant where God will put his teaching within the hearts of his people and says, I will be their God and they will be my people. And again, Ezekiel 37, where God has spoken of, in a sense, raising Israel from the dead, he says, my dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God and they will be my people. And Paul says, 
when he quotes Genesis 2.24 as he does in Ephesians 5, saying, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. Paul says there that from the beginning, marriage was a picture, first of all, of the union of Christ and his people. That from the beginning, God intended to have a people fit to live in his presence, a holy and blameless people. And when you remember that the book of Revelation ends with the marriage of the Lamb, with God's people pictured as the holy city coming down from heaven like a bride adorned for her husband, you actually realise as you look from Genesis to Revelation that the story of the world, the story of human history, has been throughout from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation, the story of God's love for his people, a great and enduring story of love. And so in making this confession of the church, we're actually confessing that the purpose human sin, our sin, appeared to make impossible, the living God has now realised in his son through his death and rising and exaltation and through the sun's pouring out of his spirit on his people. We're confessing that our God's redeemed those who are in slavery to sin and death, that he's cleansed those who were defiled, that he's given a new heart to love God to those whose hearts were dead to God. We're confessing that he has gathered to himself, gathered into one, those who were scattered, and that he will have his people dwelling in his presence, a people who delight in him and in whom he will delight forever. It's a great line in the creed. You're confessing that God has realised his purpose because he is love and has never stopped being the God of love because this one church has come into being because God has loved freely, graciously, mercifully. Here Paul in Ephesians, God who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive with Christ. It's by grace you've been saved. Or again, 1 John, God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sin. And so, yes, this is a line about the church. But in confessing this about the church, we're confessing that the God we've confessed in the paragraphs that came before, Father, Son and Spirit, is the faithful God of steadfast love, the gracious God. And actually we're wonderfully confessing more than that. We're confessing that we believers in Jesus are the recipients of his determined, generous and costly love. And that, I hope you realise, is wonderful. But why do we confess this church, the object of God's seeking gracious love, to be one, holy, Catholic and apostolic? 
Well, these terms are applied to the church because this church is the creation of God in the realisation of his purpose and because of the way he's actually achieved his purpose through the preaching and teaching of the apostles the Lord Jesus has sent out. Now we're going to look at one and Catholic this evening, terms that tell us actually that this is the church you must belong to if you're to be saved, come to live in God's presence in the new heaven and earth, one church, and that this is the church people from every kind of background can belong to, that you, whatever your race, wealth, education, culture, can belong to if you will confess Jesus Lord. So the church is one, for the one God has only one church brought into being by the one and only Saviour, the Lord Jesus, whom the only God has sent into the world. It's the Lord Jesus who says, Matthew 16, that he builds his church and it can only be entered into by faith in him, confessing him as Peter does, as Christ the Lord. Christ has only one bride, only one body, as Paul says in Ephesians. There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to one hope at your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. There's only one body, the church. And its oneness is an expression of all the other ones in this passage. One spirit. There's only one power of life that animates the whole body and every part of it the Spirit of God. It's receiving the Spirit from Christ that makes us members of the body, that includes us in this one church. Just as the body is one and has many parts and all the parts of that body, though many are one body, so also in Christ. For we were all baptised in one Spirit into one body. That's what Jesus does for his people. He baptises them in the Spirit and joins them to himself. And there is only one Lord, the Lord Jesus, whom all must confess to belong to the Christ people. This body has only one head. Oh, and one faith, which all Christians must believe, encapsulated in the Gospel summary that Christ has died for our sins, been buried and been raised on the third day. One baptism. There is only one way to be admitted into the church, and that's repentance and faith in Jesus, which is expressed in receiving the promises of Christ in baptism. There is only one entry point into the church. All believers start at the same place repentance and faith in Christ and one God who has only one people, those who belong to Jesus. God does not save his people in any other way than through his son. He is the only way to the Father. And as the apostles say, there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. As Jesus is the only Saviour, the only Lord, the one in whom God's purposes for creation find fulfilment, his church, his body, made up of all who believe in the gospel in every place and time, sustained by the one Spirit, is one. To claim there's more than one body, one church, is to say either God has more saviours than Jesus or to claim there are other ways of being Jesus' person, of being joined to Jesus, than by believing the gospel and receiving the one spirit. Neither is possible. The church is one. 
And because God, Father, Son and Spirit, is the one creator, the God of all, this one church is Catholic. Now, I know that uh, Catholic causes confusion and consternation because the Church of Rome has appropriated that term to itself, implying only those in fellowship with the Bishop of Rome are in the one Catholic Church. Now, that was always a fairly audacious grab for power, uh, which the equally old Greek churches never accepted and Protestants explicitly reject. But we still use the term Catholic in the creed. For Catholic is just a transliteration of the Greek term Catholicos, which means universal, general. And in the creed, it means that the one holy church embraces the whole world, is made up of and open to people from everywhere throughout the world, people of every nation and tribe and tongue. It's saying that the Lord Jesus in his death and rising is not just the saviour of the Jews, but as the Samaritans confessed him, really the saviour of the world. As we confess in the creed, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus is the creator of the whole world, the maker of heaven and earth. His purposes embrace the whole world. And in love he sent his son into the world to save. He has, God has, only one saviour, who is the saviour of the whole world. There's one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, all kinds and types of people. And because of this, his one church, God's one people, is universal, Catholic, made up of people throughout the world, people from every race and tongue, as the hosts of heaven Praise God for <coughs> you are the worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign on earth. We believe in one Catholic church because God has only one saviour This is the church you must belong to. For it's only as we are each joined to Jesus by faith that we can be God's people, enjoy peace with him forever, only as we are in Jesus' church. And because Jesus is the saviour of the world, this is the church you, whatever your background, can belong to. But how does this confession relate to our participation in and experience of our local churches, our experience of the visible church, the church we can see? You see, the church made up of all believers over all time and our local churches made up of believers in a certain area at a certain time are related, aren't they? There's overlap in membership And both are the expression of God's saving purpose. And because the church in the creed and the churches are the expression of the same saving purpose and membership of both is by believing in the same Lord Jesus, we ought to see that we cannot be a member of the church confessed in the creed of which you must be a member to be saved. You you cannot be a member 
of that church without being a member of the local church. And you also ought to see that what is true of the church of the creed should also be true of our congregations. And as we recognise that, we see this line of the creed speaks of both the privilege and responsibility of those who confess it together in local churches, in congregations. It is a privilege to belong to a local church. I hope you realise that. God always intended to have a people, not just isolated individuals tuning in, no offence to those on the live screen, but tuning in at, from home, okay? At, right? And the people he gathers into his one church are people he gathers into local congregations through believing the gospel. Right? People he gathers into his one church are people he gathers into local congregations. And so the sign of belonging to that one church that you must belong to is actually belonging to, participating in a local church where you can love your brothers and sisters. Now think of that. Do you come thanking God that he has joined you to his people, the people he's saving? Do you come thanking God that you can gather around the gospel word that saves you? that you can anticipate the host of heaven by singing the praise together of your saving God, or that you can receive his loving provision for your fruitful and persevering following in the gifts he gives us in each other by his spirit. Do you come to your local church with thankfulness? Gathering with the Lord's people week by week is a privilege, not a burden. So don't let it become one. You see, when we cease to think of gathering with our brothers and sisters as a privilege, it's a sign we are losing sight of gospel realities, the realities we confess in the creed. It's a sign that we started to walk by sight, seeing only time lost or difficult people or our weariness and not faith, the faith that tells us through the gospel Our Lord Jesus is building his church, which will endure forever. This line of the creed speaks of our privilege as believers to be in local congregations. But it also then speaks of our responsibility to express God's saving purpose in our life together. As you heard in Ephesians, being one creates a responsibility to maintain our unity. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, writes Paul, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. And making every effort actually says that what holds us together is not ethnicity, not class, not culture, not music. Now we make every effort because what holds us together is the gospel that saves us. We work at unity because our Lord has made us one through our common sharing in the death of our Lord Jesus as the source of our relationship with God as his people. And our Lord has given us the one spirit in which we all share. 
And as the gospel is the source of our unities, it holds out Christ to us. So it's through the gospel that we'll actually have to oppose all those things that would destroy our unity. The teaching of the gospel and the life the gospel calls for and produces in us is the way we preserve our unity. And let me illustrate that by two New Testament churches, firstly Corinthians and then Ephesians. See, think about the Corinthians. They were deciding themselves by their pursuit of prestige, status-seeking. What does Paul do? He actually undermines their preoccupation with self-importance by reminding them of the gospel of the cross that makes those distinctions we use to establish our superiority empty and worthless. If you're interested, the references are in the transcript. Oh, and the Corinthians were also dividing themselves between the strong and the weak. What does Paul do? He opposes it by teaching them to value other believers as the gospel teaches us to see them, those for whom Christ died and so infinitely precious. Oh, they were dividing over gifts. What does Paul do? He opposes it with the love we learn from Jesus in the gospel. We maintain unity by teaching the gospel of the cross and then by encouraging each other in the life that gospel calls for and produces in us. We see that in Ephesians itself. See, think of what Paul calls us to, right? Walk worthy with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Now, that is what we learn from Christ, isn't it? That is the mind of Christ to seek the interests of others above his own, the mind of Christ that led to him humbling himself to die for us on the cross. The mind, in a sense, the the mindset that has to become the mindset of all Jesus' people. And Paul goes on in chapter 4 to address behaviours that threaten their unity and ours by calling us to live out that Christ-like life. For example the way we use our tongues in gossip or expressed impatience or angry and harsh words can destroy our unity. And so the Apostle Paul says, don't let any foul language come out of your mouth, but only what's good for building someone up in need so that it gives grace to those who hears us. Focus on the well-being of the other person. Dishonesty and untrustworthiness can destroy our unity. We've got to speak the truth in love. And yes, We've got to stop being dishonest and actually be generous instead, working with our own hands to share to others in need. Now, when we hear this and that we've got to make every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, what we're hearing is that each of us has a choice to practice the attitudes and behaviours that foster unity or to indulge the selfishness that destroys it. And so when you come to confess this line of the creed, as I hope we'll do month by month, you should be asking yourself, am I thinking and acting in a way that preserves the unity of the spirit or destroys it? So, for example, do I think before I open my mouth about whether what I say is true and will build up others? Do I grumble about serving 
Or am I glad to serve Jesus' people? Am I looking to the interests of others? Has my Lord looked to mine or just my own as I come to church? Or do I allow myself to get irritated by another's behaviour when it's actually something I should bear with in love? The church is one. So we have to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And the church is Catholic. So we have to be determined to make sure our congregation is open to all our Lord Jesus calls to himself, that we accept them on the basis of their faith in the Lord Jesus. And so our determination when we meet has to be that of Paul's who tries to please everyone in everything, not seeking his own benefit, but for the benefit of the many so that they may be saved, knowing that in this Paul is imitating the Lord Jesus. And our wisdom has to be in embracing the priorities of Romans 14, recognising what does and what doesn't matter, that what actually matters is righteousness, peace and joy in the spirit. And that therefore we can be free, have difference in matters the gospel doesn't prescribe like what people eat or the days they observe or their closing preferences or even the music they like. Right, so again ask yourself, what are you doing to show the inclusiveness of the gospel in the way you relate? To whom have you opened your home to share a meal? Are you welcoming brothers and sisters from other backgrounds as full sisters and brothers? Or do you kind of treat them like guests and think that, you know, they need to become like you to fully belong? Do you support those going to share the gospel with others far from this? Are we Catholic? Now, let me say it's a great joy to be in a congregation that has people, well, not from every race and tongue, but from many races and tongues. And we should steward that as a gift because it helps us focus on what's important, doesn't it? The gospel we believe and teaching each other to be disciples by doing what Jesus, not our culture, has commanded. But we can always do better and we need to guard against acceptance fatigue. You know, meeting new people over and over just makes us tired. Having to adjust to people who are different makes us tired. And we can become fatigued and just stay in our own little group without welcoming new people in, just sitting beside them but never talking to them. We have to guard against that. And we need to remain conscious of how hard it can be for those from some backgrounds, especially those with language difficulty, To settle into our congregation, we need to be aware of that and keep making the extra effort. The church is one and Catholic and we need to make every effort to express that in our local congregation, every effort to preserve our unity and welcome all whom the Lord brings to us. Now, we'll come back to this line of the creed next week, but let me now go back to the beginning. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. When you say this line, you are declaring to the world our saving God, Father, Son and Spirit, our saving God has done it. He has saved a people for himself. 
And we're saying that our God has done it because he has loved, because he's the God of steadfast, overflowing, never-failing love of generous kindness. More, you are confessing as part of confessing faith in the Father, the Son and the Spirit. You are confessing in this line that you are included in God's saving plan. That's wonderful. In making that statement, you're actually saying that I gathered by his gospel into his people, the people I make this confession with, I am loved and caught up in the purpose of the loving God to have a people for his own. Loved with the love that sent the Son into the world, loved by the Son in his giving his life for his bride, loved with the love that nothing can frustrate in achieving its purpose. Yes, and because of that, loved with the love from which nothing can separate us. Now, that is a wonderful thing to confess, isn't it? And a confession to make with joy. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, uh, we pray in your wisdom and mercy that we would know the goodness, the, the wonder of belonging to your church, one holy, Catholic and apostolic. Uh, we pray in your mercy that we would know the love that has made our belonging possible. Know for ourselves the love that sent the Son into the world to purify for himself his own people by his death. And, Father, we pray knowing this privilege uh, we would be those who are zealous to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace by walking in humility and kindness in patience and forbearance. And we pray that we would be eager to welcome all whom you call into your people, into your church, by your gospel. Please, we pray, grant our congregation to be a church which reflects the church we confess, the church that you have rescued and saved forever. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.